health. Physical health. Physical health is not just a subject in class and grade school. As the older you get, it's a really important question that you might ask yourself every week. How is my physical health? Because physical health contributes to the vitality and the quality of your life, right? There's a number of things that we can agree on. Maybe genetics have something to do with your physical health. But beyond that, there's some things that we can focus in on when it comes to physical health that are important for us, aren't there? Nutrition, what we eat. Thinking about going to Torchy's after and getting some queso. How's that? (laughs) Nutrition, right? Sleep, how much sleep you get and what kind of sleep you get is important to health as well as the thing that we love, exercise, fitness, taking care of our bodies, all three of those things. You can argue that there's more things than that, but most people agree that fitness, sleep, and nutrition are a vital part of what makes us physically healthy. So how is the health of people in our great country that is on top of many lists of many different things? How do we fare as a nation, as a people, as it relates to health? And I don't have to tell you, but all the studies show that we are the most unhealthy physically. We're the most unhealthy nation in many ways in the world. Why are we so unhealthy? Probably because we're so busy and so we do eat torches all the time. We eat on the go. We don't get the amount of sleep that our bodies actually need. We don't exercise because we are busy and the stats bear out chronic illness. We rank number one. I'm not sure that's a category you want to be with number one. Cancer, heart disease, top of the list. We are an unhealthy nation, but I'm not here to talk to you this morning about physical health, although it's an important part of who we are as believers in Christ, to take care of the temple of God that has given us. No, I want to talk this morning about spiritual health. What not only makes you spiritually healthy, we talked a little bit last week about that in Ephesians 3, but what makes for a healthy church? When we think about our own nation that we live in and we consider the health of the church in the U.S. or even our health, And there are a lot of fatty diets out there, aren't there, for the church? Fatty diets for churches and believers, exercise programs that don't work, rest, the spiritual rest for our souls that we find in Jesus, we try to find in all kinds of other places as a church. Is the American church healthy? Are we on a diet that does us harm? Is our exercise just secular therapy? Are we asleep to all the cultural minutiae that we have to navigate? And beyond all the health questions we can ask about the church, even in our country, what about our own church? Are we a healthy church? If so, how do we even know? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll be in verses 1 through 16 as we continue to make our way through the book of Ephesians. If you're newer to our church, this is primarily what we do. We walk through books of the Bible, open God's Word, and let God's Word teach us and apply it those truths to our lives. And so we've been in Ephesians, the first three chapters, really, if I summarize them, is the immeasurable riches of God's grace in the gospel that He gives us that we desperately need because Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our trespasses. 
And yet he has made us alive through his son. And so there's these immeasurable riches that God has given us in the gospel that he's literally backed the truck up and lavished us with his grace. And then you come to chapter four through chapter six, the last part of the book, and he's going to say, why does this matter? And how is that important to the life that you walk and the life that you live? So you go from orthodoxy in chapters one through three to orthopraxy. So how do you walk? And so the first thing on Paul's list in Ephesians 4 to this church in Ephesus is church health. That's where he starts with his to-do list application. So that's where we start today. I want to show you three vital signs to look for as we ask and answer the question, what does it mean to be a healthy church this morning that you see from this text in these 16 verses? And it'll really help us evaluate, are we a healthy church Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, we'll start there. Three vital signs. Let me read. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, I therefore, this is Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, here's the word, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one, one God, one Father of all who is over all and through all in all. Listen, the first healthy marker of a church is this, can you get along? A healthy church gets along. A healthy church is, has unity. It has unity in two ways. Verses 1 through 3, it has unity in Christ-like character. Do you see these characteristics? They're all Christ-like characteristics that would do you well in any relationship that you are in. And there are verses 4 through 6. Not only is Christ-like character in the church important with one another, but a common confession is vitally important to the church's unity, a common theology, a common belief. And this is what he's, we're going to unpack for a few minutes. So verses 1 through 3, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. It's what we say to our kids when they leave for school every day. Walk in a manner worthy that God has called you to. What does that look like? In the church, humility, gentleness. You see it? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. That's hard. With love. What does that produce? What do those Christ-like characteristics produce? Unity, peace in the body of Christ. It's interesting, back in that day, there really wasn't a word in the Greek language, or even the Greek language for the word we get here, humility. The word humility was actually coined out of Jesus' message and Paul's message here. And the reason the word humility and even gentleness wasn't a part of their vernacular at all is because they saw the idea of humility as weakness. Do we not see it, fellas, the same way in our world today? Humility, gentleness, is that in our vocabulary? Is that in your vocabulary? But it takes humility to have unity in relationship to one another, doesn't it? That you're not considering just your own thoughts in your own way, but the needs of others. That's how Philippians 2 defines it. And I call these Christ-like characteristics because they're all, they all emulate the person and work of Christ, do they not? When you think about humility, 
What does Paul say in Philippians 2 about Jesus? He says that he humbled himself and he went to a cross rather than exalting himself. He made himself low that you and I might have life. He put himself on a cross for you and for me. So humility is not weakness. Humility is strength, fellas. It's a selflessness, not a selfishness. Humility, gentleness. Remember what Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I am what? I am gentle. We read the book. Gentle as a church, gentle and lowly. And yet he's a king. And you keep looking, there's a patience This idea of bearing with one another in love. You know the person that just kind of grates on you? Man, they keep doing this. And in the church, we have to continue to put up with one another, not just put up with one another, care for one another with all of our faults and warts. Bearing with one another. Think about that as it relates to Jesus. Think about that when you consider a passage like 1 Timothy chapter 1 where Paul says, Jesus has shown us his perfect patience and control. And I desire that other believers see that in me as well. A patience, a long-suffering with other believers. These are all Christ-like characteristics that contribute to a church's unity. When you see trouble in a church, you likely see pride, don't you? You don't see gentleness, you see harshness. You don't see patience or self-control, you see no control, my way or the highway. So the question, maybe an operative question for us is this. Can you play on the playground with other believers? Can you exhibit, even when you don't want something to go one way, can you exhibit a humility and a gentleness and a self-control with other people in your church? Christ-like character is central for unity and getting along with one another But there's something else here. Do you see it in verses 4 through 6? Look at verses 4 through 6. There are seven different things that that Paul says that they are one in. And as we go through these, I want you to consider. Consider what these Ephesians have come out of. They've come out of a pantheon of gods, right? There's not one Lord. There's not one Father. There's not one faith. There's not one hope. There's not one baptism. There is a plethora of them. Catch that? Look at what he says. There is one body. Remember in the previous text, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles have come together in the church. They are one. They're a new community. They're together, even though they have ethnic differences, even though they have social differences. They are one because our primary identity as believers in Christ in the church is not our skin color. It's not our social status. It's the fact that we're in Christ. We're unified in Christ. And that continuity that we have with one another is greater than any other division that we have, any other thing that's different. The college that we go to, the way that we school our children. Small fries, says Paul. You're one together. There's one body. It's made up of different kinds of people. And one spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, there's one spirit. You were called to one hope. There's one hope that you have in Christ. You are called to one Lord, one master, 
not many, not the God of Artemis, not all the other gods, one God, one Lord, one Savior, one baptism. This idea could mean the identification that we have as believers in Christ after we come to faith. We, we get baptized to show that we're identified like other believers in the body. Or even broader, it could mean the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Theologically, that just means that when you come to Christ, He's washed you and made you clean like the next person. So you're one. One Lord. One faith. That means you have one message, the gospel message that does not change. The message of the Scripture, the key doctrines of the Scriptures the core creed of the church that does not change. You share that with one another. One God, one Father of all. This is why, listen, common confession or common belief, this is why you can get on a plane and you can go to London and you can start talking to the person next to you for hours and hours. You find out they're a believer and guess what? Now you have all kinds of common ground to talk and talk and talk and the people next to you are just trying to tell you to stop talking. They won't say it. But you have common ground because you have a common faith. This is why when you go across the world, even though you can't speak the same language as a person, in Nigeria, a believer, you have a common confession. Common confession contributes deeply to the unity that we have in the church. And if you look at the early church and you look at Paul and his charge, the leaders of a church, what was he continuing to call them to do? Protect the church doctrinally from other things, other beliefs, rather than open that confession up and capitulate the truths of the Scriptures, which sometimes have hard edges, don't they? There's one Christ. There's one way. How's that message work in our world? Or we could take the, the idea of God's sexual ethic in the world. Do we change that to capitulate to the world that we certainly care about and we want to come to know Jesus? We care about people, but let's not confuse two things in our world. As the Christian church, I'm afraid that many of our fellow churches and many people are capitulating the one confession that we have, the things that we have in common. And here's the deal. Oftentimes, this doesn't come from a bad place, does it? Sometimes it does, but often it doesn't. I want to reach my unbelieving friend. I want them to come to faith in Jesus. They believe differently than me. Can I tell you, that is a right and good pursuit. But to get there, we don't change. We don't add to, we don't change the confession that brings us together. And if you look at the history of the church, what you find, especially in our country, is that times in history where people have decided to take that common confession and tweak it and open it up, two things happen. And it's not what you think. People are not reached with the gospel, which is the pursuit, which is the heart behind it, and then you have complete disunity inside the church. You've seen it lately in the Methodist world. You saw it before that in Presbyterian world, before that in Episcopal world. The desire to reach people with the gospel, but when you change the gospel, you lose the common confession, and there's no unity in the church, and the church fractures and breaks. It's interesting. 
The thing about unity is this. Unity for the Christian is not something you and I create, but it is something that we keep. And that's a beautiful thing. We don't have to create the common confession. It's given to us through the Word of God. I'm talking about the essential truths of our church. If you match our doctrinal statement, hopefully, our essential doctrinal statement to that of another church down the road that is a Christian church, they ought to be very similar. I'm not talking about if you raise your hands or if you don't. I'm not talking about that, all right? I'm not talking about what you think about secondary, tertiary, smaller doctrines. I'm talking about key doctrines of the church, who God is, how he's revealed himself in his son, the gospel, the word of God. We ought to share that across churches, inside of our church. That ought to be a shared belief. Jesus cared about that. It's already created. You can have conversations with believers across the world and agree on a common confession. And you might disagree on lesser things. That's why as a church, when when you go through a membership process or you want to look at membership, there's a couple of things that you're going to walk through and a couple of things you're going to sign off on. And this is why people ask, what's the importance of membership? We care about the unity of our church. We care about a common confession. And so we want you to know who we are. That's why I'll tell you whatever you want to know. If you want to become a member of this church, six months from now, I hope you're not going to find out something really strange to you. We're going to, get, we're going to front load all of it for you so you knew, know exactly what you're stepping into theologically, philosophically. We want you to know everything because we care about the unity of this church and the common confession. So we're going to ask you to sign off on our doctrinal statement. We're going to ask you to read what we call a membership covenant. And what that is, it's like, I'm going to have Christ-like character with one another. I'm going to pursue unity. And if I have a problem with somebody else, I'm going to go to them and we're going to work it out. Why don't we do that? So there's common confession. So there's Christ-like character so that we are one so that there are unity. And guess what? We're broken people. Every church has broken people. We're all broken people in need of God's grace. So it's hard enough, right? That's how you first have a healthy church. A healthy church gets along. A healthy church also, here's the question. If unity is important, what do we do with diversity? Look at the next section, verses 7 through 12. We have unity, but we also have some diversity in the body of Christ, diversity in gifts. Your second thought is this from verses 7 through 12, and then I'll read it. A healthy church is not only gets along. A healthy church puts the gifts that God gives the church to work. We get to work. Let me read 7 through 12. But grace was given to each one of us. Literally gift, but a gift was given to each one of us. According to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, this is Psalm 68, 8. When he ascended on high, this is a little confusing. I'll explain it here in a minute. When he ascended on high, so earth to heaven, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Parentheses, verse 9. He's saying he ascended. What does it mean? But that he has descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Verse 11, look at it. Here are the gifts that he's given to his church. And he gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. To, to, for what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, 
for building up the body of Christ. So a healthy church gets along, but a healthy church also puts the gifts, the grace gifts that God has given to work. There's action. There's gifts that he's given. Let me unpack that a little bit. When you, when you think about gifts, maybe if you've been in the church for a little while, you'll, you'll know that God has given spiritual gifts to his church, right? He's given you different gifts. Why has he done that? We'll get to that. But he's given gifts to his church to build the church up. And look at this text. It's, it's kind of a, like, where did this come from? It says he ascended on high. Here, here's what's going on. Let me, let me just explain what's going on in verse 8 and 9. And there's a lot, a lot of uh, paper that's been used on verse 8 and 9. A lot of different interpretation of what's going on. Here's what I think is going on, and here's how it relates to gifts to put at work in a church. Psalm 68 speaks of a king who's won a battle. He's won a battle, and then what does the victor do with the spoils? He disseminates the spoils, the gifts, the spoils of winning a battle, right? That's what the king does. Here's the beauty of what Christ has done. Christ has descended from heaven to earth in his incarnation. He's took on human flesh. Perfect son of God becomes the son of man and he goes to a cross to pay for your sins and my sins and dies there for you and me. He wins the battle over sin. He wins the battle over death. And then he ascends to heaven and then he gives his church the spoils, the gifts. Check this out. Notice something. A king usually gives his men, the one who have fought, the spoils. We were once captors. Like, we were the people that were captors. We were the people that were enemies, and he's brought near. He's brought us into the family of God. We come to his table every Sunday morning. And so he's given former captives gifts. He's given you gifts. You know what we often do with spiritual gifts in the church, though? It's mine. I worked for this. It's mine. You know what? If I'm a teacher, I need the spotlight. If I'm an evangelist, I need the spotlight. We treat these gifts as if we've come up with them, and they're gifts of God's grace to us. And why does he give them? What does this text say? Look at it. Verse 11, he gave some as apostles. I think that's the 12, the called ones, the prophets, those who have foretold in the Old Testament, those who fore or, or tell in the New Testament, people who speak the truth, evangelists, people who speak the truth of the gospel that lead people to Christ. That's for all of us, by the way, even though there's gifts that God has given. And shepherds and teachers, that's the word that we get for pastor. A pastor is a shepherd. He leads, he cares for the sheep, and he teaches. And what's the purpose? Look at verse 12. What's the purpose of gifts that God has given us to be a blessing? Grace gifts to do what? To equip the church for ministry. To build up the body of Christ and he's specifically in this text speaking of some former uh, or, or formal offices of the church, like pastor, elder, which you see through Scripture. There are other texts, right? Romans 12, 1 Corinthians talk about a broader list of gifts that aren't just offices, but the gift of hospitality, the gift of leadership, the gift of service, of mercy, of encouragement. I don't know if any of those are full lists, but God gives his gifts to his church for what? For others, for other people 
in the church, they're not for me. They're not for me. Now, as you exercise gifts that God has given you, is there joy that happens out of that? You think about that in your job, the natural abilities that you have. It's a blessing to you. You get fulfillment out of it, but it's not for you, ultimately, in Jesus' church. The gifts that you have are for others. This is the teaching of Scripture through and through, to equip, to build up unity with diversity. Let me show you First Peter, because I think it's a great summary kind of text on spiritual gifts, if you will, as each has received a gift. Sounds like verse 7, back in Ephesians 4. Each has received a gift. So if you're here and you're going, I don't have any gifts, wrong. <laughs> if you know Jesus, you do. You do. You hear that? You have a gift. Use it to do what? Make much of me and how great I am and the gift I am. No. Use it to do what? Serve one another. That's why God has given you the gifts that he's given you as what? Stewards. What does a steward do? He takes care of somebody else's thing. Think of a foreman on a ranch. Think of what you do with people's money. If you're a financial advisor, you're a steward of somebody else's thing. And these gifts are not all the same. They're varied. What's the point? And then he gives broad categories, two types of gifts. There's speaking gifts, encouragement, teaching, and then there are serving gifts, the one who serves by the strength God supplies. Why? Why has God given gifts? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ. To him belong glory and dominion and forever and ever. Amen. Is this the way that we use the gifts that God's given us? You think about the appliances in your home just for a minute. Think about their appliances in your home. The toaster that you used this morning, the toast bread, is that toast? It's kind of silly. Does the toaster eat the bread that it toasted? No. It's for you. Does the fridge that cools your food so that you can eat it? The fridge doesn't eat your food. You eat it. We are like that. God has given us gifts, appliances to bless others in the church. That's the purpose of spiritual gifts that God gives, to build up his church, to care for others. How do you see the gifts that God has given you? What are the conditions in which you will use those gifts? Are you benefiting others with God's giftedness that he's given you? Are are we putting those gifts to work in our church? That's how we get health, right? See, one of the things that we often do is say, well, I don't really have the gift of service, so I can't go and help on Sunday mornings. (laughs) I don't have the gift of evangelism, which means I don't have to share my faith with anything. That's not how gifts work, right? Or or the other thing we do in the church is pastors don't help here. Hey, I'm a pastor. I specialize. Let me do the work of ministry, and you just come and participate and give. Is that the job of the pastor teacher in this text? My job is to equip you for the work of ministry. That's the elder's job of a church, to equip you. So if somebody comes from an elder team or a staff and says, do you want to serve in this way? We want to help train you and encourage you, and we want you to do this. That's a biblical response. We want you to do the work of ministry. Our job is to equip the church to do that. So a healthy church gets along. A healthy church puts its gifts to work and last. A healthy church is growing up. Look at verses 13 
through 16. A healthy church is growing up. The diet of the church is a good, healthy diet. Look at the last few verses here. Verse 13. What's the goal? Until we all attain the what? There it is again. Unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God to do what? To mature. Mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we're growing up so that we'll no longer be children. It's not a slam against children, but listen. No longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, we got to grow up. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head in Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together for every joint which is equipped, every part working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, a a healthy church has a unity to it. A healthy church is using its gift for what purposes, though? To grow up, to mature. There's an active maturity. Look at the markers of maturity, though. In verse 13, there's a a Christ-likeness that ought to emulate from our lives that it's not a perfect righteousness. We aren't Jesus, but we're working to be conformed to the image of the Son, right? There's also, again, and you see it here, verse 14, there is clearly a doctrinal stability and foundation that you're growing in, that you're learning, as challenging as it may be, that you're learning and growing in doctrinal truth. There's a foundation there. You see this you see Paul using the idea of child or infant to describe it. Remember in 1 Corinthians, they were a pretty rough church. They were pretty like a baby Christians, but they had all kinds of problems. Doctrinally, had all kinds of problems relationally with one another. They doing some kind of whacked out stuff. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, you're still infants spiritually. He's talking spiritually. You're still infants. You're still taking milk when you ought to be eating meat, something to nourish you and grow you, that you haven't grown up yet, you're still at strife and jealousy with one another. You're still believing these weird things and you can't get along with one another. You're like infants that are like 15 years old. And you're, we're, we're still treating you like an infant. Second Timothy chapter 4 talks about people in the church that haven't grown and they don't want to grow because they want to have their ears tickled to the things that they want to hear rather than the truth of God. And then last, here's a, here's a really helpful marker, y'all. Verse 15, look at it real carefully. This is a challenge. And I read this, I'm convicted about this. The balance between speaking the truth. Some of us are like the prophets. They're, we're truth tellers. We get the truth right. We're very black and white. Speak the truth. We ought to speak the truth. How? In love. Many of us are truth tellers, but we in, like inviscerate people with the truth. We just destroy them with the truth. And others of us struggle like, well, I, I love the person so much, I don't have the courage to speak the truth. And so you shrink back 
from the truth because you're so concerned at what it's going to do for the relationship or the person. Maturity, maturing Christianity says, no, I can, I'm going to speak the truth, but I'm going to do it in love. I'm going to speak the truth, but there's, it's seasoned with salt. Man, we all have to grow in this one, don't we? How do I speak the truth in love? We end up in one of those, usually we end up in one of those two ditches, don't we? Man, I love that person so much, I don't know how I'm ever going to talk to him about Jesus because it's going to offend them, and I'm worried about that. Loving. But is it loving if we can't share the truth with them? And some people don't give a rip at all about how they talk to people and how people receive the truth. It's like they have a hammer and all they see is a nail, right? Speaking the truth in love is a great marker for us to know if we're maturing in our faith. And we often need the people close to us to go, hey, am I a hammer? I'm I'm, I'm trying to think of another flip side of that. Somebody help me out. What? A feather. Is that what you said? I'm sorry, I'm deaf. I'm totally deaf. Right? So how are we doing with speaking the truth and love? What ditch do we tend to, tend to fall in? And then he uses this language of the body. Look at it. We grow up to the head who is Christ. Christ is the head. You ever seen a little, maybe you have a little, little kid and it's cute when you watch it, but like they start walking and they're top heavy. Like their heads are really heavy, and so they just follow their head wherever it goes, and they fall down, right? And what this text is saying is that Christ is the head, and he's the way, but we have to grow. We have to mature into that head. So there's a maturing that goes on. We have to be growing up in our faith. This is what we see even we see through the scriptures, but let me ask you this morning, are there markers, and not perfect markers, okay, but are there vital signs that are there in your life that demonstrate that you are, maybe slowly but surely, we're all slow but sure, growing up a little bit? Are we growing up in Christ? Are we using our gifts? Are we demonstrating Christ-like maturity? Or maybe you've been a Christian for 10 years and you're still beating people up with the truth. Maybe you're a Christian for 10 years and it's really hard for you to speak the truth to yourself and to others. Where are we at? And as a church, where are we strong? Where are we maturing? And where are we weak? Where do we need some work? So what Paul is saying is a healthy church grows up, a healthy church uses its gifts, and they get to work. Paul's saying a healthy church is also a church that can get along. So are we growing up? In nature, you have this thing with organisms, don't you? You have these different kinds of relationships in nature. You have a mutually symbiotic relationship. Think of different animals that have like this symbiotic, mutual relationship with one another. One that I think of are like ants. Ants in a tree. Achaia trees have ants in them, and there is a symbiotic, mutual relationship that care for one another. One another. Ants need a place to live, and so they live in the, in the hollow of these Achaia trees, but they also help those trees not be taken over and killed by herbivores who take the limbs and the leaves off the tree, the ants act as a detractor 
There's a symbiotic mutual relationship between the ant and the tree, and you can think of your own examples of that as well. And then there are other kinds of relationships in nature that are more parasitic, where there's one organism that feeds off the other. And I don't know if you've sprayed your yard yet, but it's April and the mosquitoes are coming. If they're not already here, and what do they do? They take. They get on you and they take your blood. They don't give anything back except disease, right? They don't give anything good back. They're parasitic. You don't want them on you. So my question for you is this. What kind of relationship as a believer in Jesus do you have with the church? Is it parasitic where you come and you take and you take it? Or do you give? Is it symbiotic? Because here's the beauty of the church for all of us. The beauty of the church is this. You need the church. And the church needs you. That's a healthy church. You need the church. You need the church as kind of the sandbox so you can work on Christian unity with other believers. Don't you? Where that rub helps you. You need the church theologically to be reminded in a crazy world that you live in of what the Christian confession is and what's inbounds and out of bounds to grow theologically so when crazy stuff happens in our culture, you can interpret it with the help of your church. You need the church also to put your gifts to work, to work with others who have different and diverse gifts than you do and figure that thing out to build up the body of Christ. You need the church, as painful sometimes as it is, to figure out how to speak the truth and love to one another, don't you? You know what you see when you see people outside the body of Christ, believers outside the body of Christ? There's atrophy, isn't there? There's relational atrophy between believers, and there's doctrinal atrophy that happens if you're not part of the church, a healthy church. You need the church. But here's the thing. The church needs you. The church needs you to bring unity when there is trouble, to call brothers and sisters to unity in Christ-like character. The church needs you to defend the truth of the confession, the common confession that we have. The church needs you to put your gifts to work. And when you come on Sunday morning, you see that. You see people serving, setting up physical stuff. You see people teaching our children, speaking the truth of the gospel to them. You see all these different gifts in the church put to work. You see on a Sunday night or a Monday or Tuesday night at our church in community groups, you see people hosting community groups. You see hospitality where people are brought into other people's homes to care for and love in the name of Christ. You see discussions around truths in the Scriptures. This common faith that we share, that we can talk about, that we can bear each other's burdens. See, the church needs you to use your gifts, and the church needs you to teach others in the church how to speak the truth in love.
You need the church, C3. You need the church, and the church needs you. Let me pray.